If you're enjoying the show and can't wait to hear more episodes, you can binge listen the entire season ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com headlong and use promo code headlong. Hey there, before we start, just know this episode contains mature content. Previously on Surviving Y2K. Olathe police tell us there's been a bank robbery at the Bank of America. There's a ton of snipers across the street in the grass, and they've blocked off all of the ways to get out. Did she say why she was doing it? She was telling us all about the baby she lost and how she had about a half a million dollars in gambling debt. She just kept wanting to talk to her boyfriend. She wants to see him in the parking lot first, and she'll have someone at the front door waiting to come outside. And I kept going, can you just let her talk to her boyfriend? Okay, that's not gonna happen. Then we're gonna be here all night. Okay. I love you, Nikki. Nothing's gonna happen if they let you see me face to face and then it all ends. The only way they're gonna do that is if you let the people go. Not all of them. Get your ass down here, Sean. Do not piss me off. And if the FBI don't like it, piss my fucking ass. Episode 5, New Year's Day. 1.30 a.m., January 1st, the year 2000, New York City. We're all still here. I don't know about you, but when midnight came on December 31st, man, did I really want something to happen. Now, hear me out. I mean, the beginning would have been rough, I know. We lose maybe, I don't know, 2% right off the bat from the panic and the mobs. And later another 10% from the nuclear fallout. But then, the rest of us... We could rebuild. We could form clans to survive, to share resources and fight off the outsiders. And later, the cannibals from the Upper West Side, who turn humans into a sick semblance of whitefish salad to schmear on their bagels. In that world, our lame stories, our lifelong lies, they wouldn't matter. The fact that I had married a woman who I shouldn't have married, that it was all a private one-sided sham, and that I would now have to implode the whole thing, that would seem pretty small, right? There's no crushing shame in the apocalypse. Just some story to tell my new buddies around the campfire while we sharpen our spears. But as I leave that party I was at in that club on 57th Street, the only sign of disaster is some smoke in the air. Just the ghost of fireworks and the odd abandoned Nine West shoe in the gutter. In the streets, they're flooded with people celebrating toasting friendships and life and the future and just being here now. That right there on that street is the most alone I have ever felt. But now I look back and I'm not alone. Now it's me and my people, my compadres that we met this season. The doomsday preppers and the anxious computer coders and the true believers and the bank robber. Now all of us had to deal with what was in front of us still. The next two episodes, our last two, are about that. Today we'll talk about why nothing happened, why the bug never bit, and how our coders, Dave Eddy and Bob Loblaw, how they would both claim victory, and how those victories contained within them deeper failures. But that's later. First, there's two hostages and one pissed off bank robber waiting to see how this day one is going to affect each of them for years to come. I'm Dan Taberski. And this is Surviving Y2K. 1230 AM, New Year's Day, Olathe, Kansas. All right, we have reporters on the scene. 
Now to KMBC 9's Michael Mahoney. Do we have any sort of confirmation from police or the FBI how many hostages remain inside? Yeah, we do. Two hostages, a man and a woman, remain inside of that bank building, and they are being held hostage by an individual that is being described as the suspect in this robbery. And we did talk with that uh, suspect earlier this evening. She said she had lost her job, she had lost the support of her family, and that she had lost hope for the future. She told us that she would release everybody if she could talk face-to-face -face with a friend named Sean. Now, we know that she has had a telephone conversation with this friend named Sean earlier this evening. It's hour eight of the standoff. Nikki the robber has dug in her heels, scrunchie in her hair, gun in her hand, pointed at the two hostages left. At the beginning, there were 16. When everyone was there, it was more like trying to figure out how to get the next person out, how are we going to talk, convince her to let another one go. Um, so that was always in my mind, so it went pretty fast. That's John Ann, the bank manager, one of the two remaining held at gunpoint. After everyone was gone, you know, and it was just Ron and I, then it just seemed to drag. Ron is a teller at the bank. Ron's wife is now outside with the police, waiting helplessly for something for anything to happen. She's eight months pregnant. She didn't know if I was going to live or not. She didn't know if she was going to have to raise our child on her own. Also there, the FBI and snipers and a SWAT team ready to pounce. And exhaustion is setting in all around. And so the cops decide to bring in reinforcements. Hello? Hi, is this Ron? Yes. Ron, this is Nancy. I'm with the police department. Okay. Hi, Nancy. How are you? All right. Nancy is the hostage negotiator, and she now has the unenviable job of trying to end this thing. Oh, is Nikki right there? Yes. All the calls between Nancy and the people in the bank were recorded. Okay, can you put her on? Um, uh, let me see if she'll speak to you. Okay, tell her my name is Nancy. Okay. Tell her I really want to talk to her. Well, what do you want? Ron, tell Nikki that I really want to talk to her. I, I did. She okay, just, told me don't, to don't, ask don't what Don't talk to wants. me. Just repeat. Just repeat what I'm saying, okay? Just say Nancy really wants to talk to you. Nancy really wants to talk to you. Huh. Talking to you is not going to solve okay. anything. Tell her it's about Sean. It's about Sean. Go ahead, tell me. Tell her I want to talk to her about Sean. I don't want to talk to you about it. Nikki has been saying for the past seven hours that the only way she will end this is if she gets to see Sean in person. The cops say no. It's a stalemate. And right around now, with the place surrounded and no way out, Nikki is having second thoughts about the whole thing. I mean, she wasn't the brightest, I don't think, because she wanted to, like, she says she wants to put the money back in the vault. And I'm like, well, do you think that negates that you held us hostage and you robbed? I really even started arguing with her a little bit, saying, I don't think it matters. And she's like, I want to put it all back in the vault. And I'm like, fine. And that, that must be weird to start to get snippy to your hostage taker. Yeah, and, and I think it was in my mind. I was just like, and then at that time I'm getting a little irritated because it's just plain stupid. And so we go back to the vault and I start putting it all back in the vault and she's like, was that how it was? I'm like, I really don't think it matters. Meanwhile, Nancy, the hostage negotiator, is on the outside. Do you think she'd get back on the phone with me? Uh, no. And Nikki, 
is on the inside. Is she right next to you? Yes. Okay. Does she have the gun still in her hand? Oh, yeah. Okay. And Ron is monkey in the middle. Okay, I need you to talk to her for me. Tell her that Sean loves her. Repeat what I'm saying. She said to tell you that Sean loves you. And he wants to talk to her. Tell her. So, so talk to me. She wants to hear his voice, not yours. Tell her he does not want to talk to anybody else. Sean. Ron. Tell her that I want to tell her about what Sean has talked about. She wants to tell you what Sean has talked about. Okay, she's listening. Sean is concerned about her. Sean is very worried about her, but he's so sick right now, he can't talk. I don't want her to give up on this conversation. Sean is not really sick, by the way. This is Nancy's strategy to get Nikki worried enough about Sean that she'll just give up. Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to let her know his feelings. Okay, Sean, you're going to have to say that again. Okay. Sean loves her, is that what you said? Yes. Sean loves you. And um, he's very concerned about your feelings. But he's, he's sick. What else did you say? So yeah, Nikki, she's not buying it. She wants to speed it up. Okay, ask her if she will talk to me. She wants to speak to you. Okay, ask her if she will come out right now. Ask her to put the gun down and come out. This will end it all, and she can come on out and stand Okay, hold on, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Okay. I know they heard my conversation with Sean. No. I'm not stupid. They have it on tape. They let us do it. Let's go. Why don't you stop calling until you have Sean? Hang up the phone. Don't hang up. Don't hang up. Ron. Yes. This is Nancy. Are you all right? Yeah. Okay. Do not hang up. Do not put me on hold. Okay? Is Nikki right there? Yes. Okay. Ron, can you get out? No. Does she have a gun in her hand? Yes. Okay. She has, okay. All right. Just relax. Okay? It's going to be all right. You guys, is, you is guys right aren't going to do anything nuts, are you? No, no, we're not going to do anything nuts, okay? Is she right next to you? Because I'm more nervous Ron, at this point. No, you listen to me. This is my life. I'm more nervous about you guys storming in Ron, here, bullets blazing, than I am her at listen this point. To my questions. The only way I can help you is if you calm down. Is she, is she standing right next to you? She's sitting beside me. Okay, just answer yes or no to my questions, all right? How close is she to you? Close enough. Nancy tries a different route. This is Nancy. Hi. Are you doing all right? Yeah. Okay. The John Ann route. How's Nikki doing? Pretty good. Can Nikki hear you from where you're at? No, I'm in another room. Okay. I'm not in the lobby. Can you get out from where you're at? Yes. You can get out? Get out now. I can't. I can't leave Ron. No. Listen to what I'm she saying. She will shoot Ron, okay? Listen to what I'm saying. You've got to get out. John Ann, listen to me. You've got to trust me on this, okay? I'm a police officer, and I'm telling you, you've got to get out, all right? We're going to take care of Ron. You've got to trust me on that. We take Nikki. care of the others. Tell Nikki. Is that Nikki? Uh-huh. Okay. Is she all right? She wants to know who I'm on the phone with. Okay. Tell Nikki I want to tell her about Sean. Okay, just like she wants to tell you about Sean. Hello? Nikki? What? Nikki, this is Nancy. It's okay. I just want to tell you about Sean because he's very upset. Okay? You have, what, exactly 30 seconds? Okay. Hurry up. He is very, very upset. He is so upset 
that he's getting sick, okay? Well, you know what? Unless I see Sean or talk to Sean, Nikki, you can't, Nikki, don't do this to him. He is so concerned about you. That is the reason he's not talking right now. He is so concerned about you. Well, then I guess it's me a while, okay? Yeah, Until Nikki, I talk to Sean, that's it. Nikki, bye. Nikki, don't hang up. Don't hang up. 12.45 a.m. Everyone is kind of losing it a bit. And so John Ann decides, hey, perfect time to get some paperwork done. I'm literally doing, we have this Y2K checklist and I had just passed midnight. A lot of businesses had this, a process to see how much damage the bug had done post midnight. You had to turn on your computers, check, and I'm like, I'm not coming back in the morning to do this. I might as well do it now. And so she does, with Nikki and her gun hovering. So I'm like doing my Y2K checklist and she's going, can I help you? And I'm like, no, nothing you can do. I just, if I get it done, I won't have to come back in the morning. She said, can I help you? Yeah, she offered help. At that time, she really thought like we were friends, you know. And did you just want to smack her? Oh, yeah, pretty much. I was just getting very irritated. I think that's why I was getting so irritated. I'm like, look, this isn't. I'm just, I'm, I'm irritated. I was irritated at the FBI. I was irritated at the police. I'm like, this should be over. I like that everybody's like, why is John Ann in such a bad mood? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like doing my Y2K checklist thinking this night's going to never end. <laughs> <laughs> but it will. Very soon. John Ann? Yeah, this is Nancy. Nancy calls. Hey, Nancy. And I put him on speaker. Your family's concerned about you. Nancy is making up another story, this time about John Ann's mother-in-law being sick. So Nikki will overhear and feel bad and let John Ann go. Your your mother-in-law, who's watching your seven-year-old daughter, is very upset. You know, with her heart condition, she's really struggling tonight. But again, no one's buying it. So they're all listening on speaker and kind of rolling their eyes. I know you're upset as it is because your father-in-law just died. Right, so you're having a hard time right now. So I'm like, come on. And so I, I was just fed up and I put my head down on the table. I'm like, this is never going to end. Meanwhile, Nikki is looking for a pen to write John Ann a note about what to say next. And it's a funny thing because, you know, you, you're in my office. So you can see I'm not the most organized, but she couldn't find a pen in my office. So she set the gun down to find a pen and so I think she started to get a little complacent. She sat the gun on the desk, on John Ann's desk. And that's when Ron grabbed the gun. And she lunged at me. Nikki jumps on Ron, and they're fighting for the gun. John Ann, is anybody there? Nikki was going for broke. She she wanted that gun back. The phone. Somebody pick up the phone. Clawing, grabbing. John Ann, is anybody there? Is anybody there? That's when I, I threw the gun. The phone. Somebody pick up the phone. So he throws the gun at me, and I'm like, well, <laughs> so I have to make a decision. Like, is she going to get the gun first, Somebody or do I take it? Did she try to get to the gun? Oh, yeah. He throws the gun, the gun's on the floor, you guys look at each other. And I just grab it and run. Out of the room, 
and out of the bank. So as I was running out, SWAT team was swarming in. Did you know you were the type of person who could do that? You know, no, 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 no. I would, no, I didn't think I had it in me. It was, it was, I was surprised myself. Nikki is arrested. John Ann and Ron, the last two hostages, are released. An hour into the new year, more than eight hours after the standoff began. I couldn't get up. You, you don't realize you get such an adrenaline that I literally could not get up from the ground. They had to bring several people over because I was just like Jello, could not get up, could not move. Ron walks out of the bank with just a few scratches from the scuffle and hugs his wife, Jamie, her eight-month baby bump in between them. First thing I remember was when we got in our car, I just broke down and started crying because I felt, and this is going to sound strange, but I felt bad for smacking around and beating up a woman. I was always raised, you don't hit women. Um, How did the next couple days play out? Um, It was hard. It, It was hard for Jamie. I remember hearing her in the shower crying. You know, it didn't just end when the robber was uh, apprehended. A week later, they lose the baby. Amelia Grace is stillborn. Of course, the doctors don't want to point to anything that might cause the mother to feel like it was her fault and and blame herself or even blame it on the stress of the robbery. So it, it was just kind of one of those deals where, you know, no one... No one knows for certain. Do you wrap it all up together? The robbery, the standoff, and the loss, and... Yeah. Yeah, I do. At the sentencing hearing, Nikki has to listen to some of the hostages make victim statements, starting with John Ann. So I really felt the responsibility to get up there and say, to let her know that she affected people and affected their lives more than just that night. Lifelong and that I wasn't ready to forgive her. Uh, It took, I quit sleeping at night. This is Becky, the last hostage that Nikki let go willingly. I still, I literally still don't sleep at night. Really? Even though it's been 18 years later, yeah. And the, the doctors told me it's all part of that. And it's like, okay, so I've just learned to live with it. And Ron, who suffered such a terrible loss, a loss similar to Nikki's, in fact which helped set that whole night in motion to begin with. John Ann remembers you forgiving her. Mm-hmm. Did you? Uh, I learned many, many years ago that you know forgiveness is for the person that was hurt, not necessarily the person who did the hurting. You have kids? I do. Uh, I have a daughter that was born 11 months after we lost Amelia. Her uh-huh. name's Madison Rose. <laughs> and then uh, we had twin boys two and a half years later, uh, Joseph Dante and uh, Justin Dominic. That's good. That's good news. Yeah. It ended up being a blessing. And um, why? Because I shifted my priorities. You know, I remember sitting there at, you know, right after midnight, looking at a picture on my desk going, I missed her last, um, she had a thing at school that I missed because I was working. And I, you know, swore to myself, I wouldn't miss those. And I didn't. I haven't missed anything since. 
Yeah, and then I still, to this day, and it's been almost 19 years, I never work a full New Year's Eve. Nikki served nine years in prison. When she got out, she married Sean. They're still married. Coming up, a new millennium for our coders. Y2K salesman Dave Eddy and Canadian whistleblower Bob Blah Blah. That's after this. If you ever find yourself in a survival situation with only two sources of information, one, a radio that only plays conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, and the other, a dog with a Ouija board. I'm Alex Jones. I'm your host. Pick the dog. Because Alex Jones, he is just making shit up. As the developments uh, move forward with this Y2K and this gear up for uh, clamping down in America and Russia and around the world by... My globalist forces will be bringing you the news as long as we're here on the air. After months of alt radio expounding on the what ifs of what would happen when New Year's hit, Alex Jones on December 31st in a three hour broadcast went full tilt. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there are trains of military equipment moving into Austin. Fox News reported that the airport will be used as a massive holding facility for troublemakers. Ladies and gentlemen, we're off the internet. Yeah, none of this is really happening. And absolutely, this looks like just one more ratchet on the takeover of America. I mean, what do you even say to that? 20 years later, when we're all now screaming, hey, you got fake news chocolate in my truth peanut butter. No, you got your fake news peanut butter on my truth chocolate. Well, we can't say we weren't warned. Uh, just maintain your readiness, be calm, defend your family, defend your country. Meanwhile, in reality, it all ended with a the story is, Peter, that there is no story, and they're happy to report that. No major problems to report, not only in the United States, but in fact, throughout the world. And so far, not one single major, or for that matter, that we know of, minor Y2K problems. The Pentagon says Y2K has not caused any problems for the United States military so far. Does the phrase, no news is good news, resonate so loudly? In fact, officials were so confident that the head of the FAA, Jane Garvey, made a point of being up in a plane when midnight struck. Jane Garvey said she sent a telegram to the president and she used the words used by Orville and Wilbur Wright in 1903, success, stop, inform press, stop. <laughs> I like Peter? it a lot. Thanks very much, Lisa. Sorry. The federal government spent eight and a half billion dollars they estimate about $100 billion, Peter, spent by private industry in this country. Was this a hoax? Was this a hype? So, what happened? This was the perfect scam. Remember Bob Blah Blah? Bob Blah Blah? In the late 90s, he had scored his dream job as a coder for the Canadian government. It was so exciting. Until the Y2K bug came around. And everything stopped. And he became an anonymous whistleblower on the internet, counting down the days till he would get to do what he just knew he was going to get to do. 
I don't know. I was just so excited to stand up and say, look at me. I was right and everyone was wrong. And from where Bob Loblaw sits, he's right. We were suckers. It was never a serious problem, and the almost total lack of bug-related glitches at midnight proves it. And for the past three years, charlatans and scam artists who knew more about computers than we did scared us so bad that we just handed them our wallets. It's a little like announcing that we are at war. Remember all that alarm bell ringing in D.C. about how many of the world's billions of microchips had the bug? Between 2 and possibly 5% of those chips will fail. Well, in the Senate's final report, it's not 2 to 5%. It's more like 0.001%. Kind of a big difference. And what about countries like Italy or China, who did little to practically nothing to stop the bug? How come they didn't have any problems either? That is what Bob Blah Blah wants to know. When nothing happened, planes didn't fall off the out of the sky and nuclear weapons didn't launch on their own and all that, I thought there'd be some sort of, not investigation, but kind of just a, a, a summary. But it was, boop, it was gone. No one wants to hear it. All the alarmist press, all the hand-wringing, all the hundreds of billions of dollars poured into this thing. It just stopped dead on, you know, in the first week of January like it never existed. What had been unstoppable all of a sudden had become unspeakable. I think a lot of it probably had to do with embarrassment for by a lot of people, especially the media. They they took everything just verbatim for three straight years. But for Bob Loblaw, he was right, goddammit. And if he wasn't going to be carried through the streets of Ottawa surfing a crowd of grateful Canadians, well, he'd engineer his own victory lap. January 5th, 2000. Welcome back to Design Jewelers, the enlightened mind on Shaw Television. This is a public access show where Bob Loblaw took off the mask, revealing that he, Bob Loblaw, a coder for the Canadian federal government, was the force behind Y2KComputerBugHoax.com. And he did it, it should be said, wearing a black mock turtleneck. Very new millennium. But it became more than that. It was survivalists uh, came out. Uh, religious people came in. But the apocalypse, it just morphed from a simple... He also published an op-ed in The Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper. The headline? You got conned and I told you so. And it was signed David Robert Blah Blah, a.k.a. Blah Blah Blah. But before we take Bob Loblaw's word for it, there's another explanation of why nothing happened on Y2K. And it's this. We saved ourselves. We did it. And the same thing that Bob Loblaw says is proof he was right, that the almost total lack of bug-related glitches at midnight, it's exactly what the other side points to, to show that they were right. That all the time and money and even the fear, it was worth it. No Y2K disaster because we stopped it. It's a problem. It's a problem. You've got to admit this is a problem. Remember Dave Eddy, the software salesman pushing a product to help solve the Y2K bug? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a Paul Revere kind of thing. That was my basic role. It's a problem. You've got to admit this is a problem. A problem that if things break Dave Eddy's way, will make him very rich. So then you shift from Paul Revere to salesman. And he's not super shy about it. Just because, you know, some idiot thinks it was a hoax, that's their problem. It's not my problem. <laughs> 
you're an idiot. Well, it's January 1st, and now Dave Eddy, he wants his victory lap. Right away, he begins working on a big article. And this was to be an attaboy. An attaboy. An attaboy. Attaboy, like attaboy. It would be comprehensive, an oral history almost, with quotes from all the big tech people detailing how they all worked together to solve the Y2K bug. It was to be an attaboy of, okay, we got through it, the world is still going, and you know, you're not gonna get, you're not rich, but we're gonna put you up on the stage and give you a round of applause. Did you get your attaboy? No, absolutely not. The big guys would not talk. Can't talk about it. I called State Street Bank. Nope, can't talk. Called the IBM rep. Nope, can't get any names. No one will talk. And it makes total sense. Why would any company or government admit to having had Y2K problems after all that? Just fix them on the down low, right? Why paint it as a buzzer beater when you can say it was a blowout? And this fed into the idea that it was all a sham. Oh, that was so frustrating. It really was. I mean... <sighs> Remember Andrew the Goth, the coder in the UK who was there at the beginning of all this? For workaday coders like him, the idea that the bug was all made up, it drives them up the wall. You're talking about hundreds or thousands of people who put in years of their lives to fix this thing. And that's why I get a little bit feisty when people say, oh, no, it, was, it was all a hoax. It wasn't a real thing. It, you know, it wasn't really a problem. It's like, oh, good God, yes, it was. It was an absolutely massive problem. And, and the reason you didn't notice is because people like me spent years of our lives fixing it. And here's another thing to consider. There were bug-related problems. In subsequent reports, we find out that at midnight on December 31st, a U.S. spy satellite system went haywire. Wind shear monitors at half a dozen airports shut down. Radiation detectors at a Japanese nuclear power plant failed. But they're all isolated and fixed. And the lack of one big thing, one big malfunction anywhere in the world to point to, to say, phew, glad that wasn't us. It makes Dave Eddy's point that we did it almost unprovable. I was pissed. Do you just kind of wish something bad happened? In retrospect, yeah. Because people, when bad, stupid things happen, then they pay attention. If things work, they don't pay attention. And that's, that's the lesson not learned out of Y2K is, just, well, nothing happened. It couldn't have been a problem. There is a name for Dave Eddy's situation here. It's called the prophet's dilemma. A prophet makes a prediction. Like, say, my producer Henry says, Dan, you're not going to be ready for your interview with Dave Eddy. You haven't read up enough. You haven't prepared any questions. You're not going to be ready. But if I'm so scared that I do read up and do prepare, then Henry's prophecy doesn't come true. I nail it. I'm a hero. I'm like winning awards for my Dave Eddy interview. And Henry looks like an idiot. Even though his prophecy is what saved me. But I never tell anyone that. I take it to my grave. The prophet's dilemma. Sometimes, as Dave Eddy will tell you, it sucks to be the prophet. How long did it take for the term Y2K to become poison? Uh, we had a recession. In 2001, the tech industry went bust. And Dave Eddy went looking for his next thing at one of those job fairs for tech people. I can't tell you how uplifting it was first thing Monday morning to be in a room with 50 unemployed MBAs. And I was not the oldest person in the room. So there they are, dozens of down-on-their-luck MBAs, milling around the coffee urn, peeling open creamers to go in stupidly small cups, wondering, how did I get here? And then Dave Eddy, the man who literally invented the term Y2K, stands in front of a job consultant half his age. 
where we get to a, res uh, to a resume review, kind of everybody's, you know, redoing resumes, blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, you got to take that off your resume. Take what off your resume? My Y2K experience, six years of my life. That she just said, well, that's irrelevant. No one wants to know that. Were you, what, what does that feel like? I was pissed. I'm still pissed. Because I knew damn well how much I had worked for not a whole lot of reward, some, but not what I felt I deserved. Oh, I thought I was going to score big, and that didn't happen. And I wasn't going to go down, well, except for you, I was not going to go down in history as Paul Revere. In the final analysis, it's estimated that over $500 billion were spent fixing the Y2K bug. Was it overkill? Perhaps. Or maybe even probably. But at the same time, it remains arguably the biggest example of global cooperation in human history. World governments and public-private partnerships on an unprecedented scale, working together to solve what may have been an existential problem for modern society. And at this very moment, there is a sad, fluffy little polar bear cub floating alone on a melting ice raft, wondering if we humans got another one of those global cooperation things left in us. Poor little polar bear. But whether it was a colossal scam or a narrowly dodged bullet, either way, it was done. And Bob Blah Blah up in Canada was ready, finally, to go back to work after New Year's and do all the cool new internet stuff that he came to the job for in the first place. Only one small hitch. He had outed himself, really publicly, to the world and to his bosses as Y2K computer bug hoax guy, the guy who was calling them all dumbasses online for two years. What made you decide to come out of the closet? Looking back at it now, it was a really stupid thing for me to do. Uh, a few days later, I got a, uh, I always had uh, uh, conference calls with my uh, bosses in, in Ottawa. He's working remotely at this point, in his home office, where a couple days before, he had cracked a beer, watching his own prophecy come true at midnight. And so uh, I was talking to one person, just a regular, doing updates of our various other programs that we're, we're working on. And then suddenly I hear there's more people in the room and on the other side and more people. And there were a lot of big wigs in there. And then they said they saw my article and uh, it was pretty much said that, you know, we overspent on Y2K and that my uh, contract was going to be terminated. And then it was. I uh, remember talking to them, and then I have, you know, four or five computer screens. And as I'm talking to them, I, I see my passcodes lost my feed to a couple of things I was on. And so they were electronically terminating me as I was talking to them. And I thought, wow, this is, this is real. Bob Blah Blah can't prove his firing was because of Y2K. But you know, the timing is a little odd. And the computers that Bob Blah Blah had fallen in love with that he had reoriented his life around? Did you ever go back into computing? Nope, nothing, no. That's my uh, knowledge of computers stopped on the year 2000. Why? I don't know. It just seemed like just just kind of my belief in it just kind of fizzled out that it's 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 it, it's just a tool. It kind of just, just fizzled out for me. Wow. Sorry, I, I hate to be on the nose, but like everyone was worried the technology was going to stop on January 1st, the year 2000, and it only stopped with you. <laughs> exactly. It's gone. I think that's kind of neat. <laughs> I do have an iPhone, though. 
Yeah, but you're probably that guy who's always like, how does this work, Dan? <laughs> Today, Bob Loblaw is back in Saskatchewan. So tell me about your work now. Oh, it's just a, a little chocolate shop, and uh, it's all handmade uh, chocolates, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a chocolate shop owner. And as for his website, Y2K Computer Bug Hoax, that is still up online today, 18 years later, computers, fittingly, get the last laugh. I don't have the, the, the password, and I did every permutation to get into it, which I don't understand why it's still on the web. Frozen in time since the dawn of the third millennium. It's just like this permanent document that's just floating out there that I can't change or even destroy if I wanted to. I like, it's like a, a satellite I've sent out into space and now it's, you know, it's, it's past Mars and it's just going to be there forever and I have no control over that. T-minus 15. Postscript. 10, 9, 8... It's 2005, just after New Year's, Cape Canaveral, Florida. Three, two, one. We have ignition and liftoff of a Delta II rocket carrying deep impact. NASA launches a probe named Deep Impact into space. Coming up on T-plus 36 seconds, we are now supersonic. For years, it beams data back to Earth. High-res pics of whirlpool galaxies and images of comets like we had never seen before. The comet Hartley 2, by the way, is shaped like a peanut. Now passing an altitude of three miles, downrange distance. But on August 12th, 2013, NASA loses contact with Deep Impact. For weeks, scientists can't figure out why. And when they finally do, it turns out the root of the problem is, wait for it, a computer glitch. Now, my head will explode trying to explain this, but basically it's that the code only allows for 32 digits to measure time, down to the tenth of a second. And Deep Impact had spilled over that limit, so it couldn't tell what time it was. So, it just stopped working. Experts say this glitch is going to be a real nightmare in 20 years, when non-NASA computers that use the system will have the problem. They're calling it the Y2038 bug. Will we try to solve it to the point of overkill or ignore it and see what happens? Deep Impact won't care either way. In the 20 years till then, and probably decades and centuries and millennia after that, she'll just be drifting, quietly, in the deepest, loneliest space. And now it's floating past Mars, and it's just going to be there forever, and we have no control over that. Jettison. All three air start motors have jettisoned. Next time, on the season finale of Headlong Surviving Y2K. Tom and Susan, the survivalists. You, sir, were a nut job for getting ready for Y2K. We told you it wasn't going to happen. And that's what You're they did. a nut job. Adair Levon and her family in Israel. They put handcuffs and ankle cuffs on me and said I was under arrest. And I'm like, where are my kids going? Ready to lose my mind. Why didn't I ask myself, is this really who I am? And me. And how we all learned that, calendars be damned, the apocalypse is going to come on its own good time. 
it was burning 15 acres a second. And the windows of the house are vibrating. They're going, because it's coming at us. Headlong, Surviving Y2K is produced by Henry Malofsky and me, I'm Dan Taberski. Our associate producers are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Ben Phelan. Ben also does research and fact-checking. Joel Lovell is our editor. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Our theme song is Burns by George Fitzgerald, courtesy of Domino Recording and Publishing Company. Music clearance by Dan Kanishkowi. This episode was mixed by Martin Johnson at Soundtelling in Sweden. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. The team at Topic Studios is Lita Malad and Lisa Leingang. And a special thanks to Adam Pincus. You can also find Headlong on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us and check out more podcasts from Topic at topic.com slash podcasts. Finally, quick favor, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It means a lot to me, and it's also a great way for other people to find the show. Thanks. We will see you back here next week when we head into the third millennium. If you're enjoying the show and can't wait to hear more episodes, you can binge listen the entire season ad-free right now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com headlong and use promo code headlong.